Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Otolaryngology, beyond ear tubes and sinuses. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, your Prairie Doc this evening. In this episode, we'll be looking at issues from the neck on up. But first, a look at this week's Prairie Doc quiz question. Multiple choice tonight. Which of the following are causes of head and neck cancer? A, tobacco, smoked and smokeless. B, alcohol. C, human papillomavirus. Or D, all of the above. Viewers who call in the correct answer will be entered into a drawing to win a copy of the book, The Picture of Health. Each of Dr. Holmes' essays, originally written for On Call with Prairie Doc, comes with a wonderful accompanying photograph by Dr. Judith Peterson. We will announce the answer and the winner at the end of the show. Remember, you only have 10 minutes to get your answer in. We answer your questions as they are called in or sent to us via Facebook or email. Call in questions to 1-888-376-6225 or send us an email to the address on the screen. Joining us tonight in the studio is Dr. Jonathan Melema, an ear, nose, and throat doctor with Avera Medical Group Specialty Care in Brookings, South Dakota. Welcome, John. Thanks for coming in tonight. Thanks for having me. So, you are an ear, nose, and throat doc, otherwise known as an otolaryngologist. Did I say that right? <laughs> very good. I'm very impressed. <laughs> what is an otolaryngologist? <laughs> Uh, so otolaryngologist is what's usually known as an ear, nose, and throat doctor, or an ENT, but uh, there's a lot of different uh, parts of the anatomy that go into it. So the, the name at one point was actually otorhinolaryngologist, and before in the 1970s, ophthalmology was combined with it, so it was one big specialty there. But uh, in the 70s, that they split, and then it's gone through some evolutions, and now their favorite term is otolaryngologist head and neck surgeon just to make it more of a mouthful, but you can see why it's usually said ENT instead. Tell us a little bit about your background. Um, so I grew up in, in Minnesota and um, went to college at Bethel University in the Twin Cities, and then after that went to the University of Minnesota for medical school, and then matched in residency down in Cincinnati, Ohio, and went to the University of Cincinnati for five years for my residency before coming back uh, for practice, and so I've been back, I think, let me think, I've been 16 years of practice now, so it goes by. Time flies when you're having fun, right? <laughs> Yes. Uh, what, what made you choose ENT? Um, well, I actually enjoyed, at the time, I thought I wanted to be a family practitioner. Uh, I liked the idea of having kind of longer relationships and uh, dealing with people from, you know, birth on up. Um, but then I found out in medical school and residency, or medical school, I guess I would kind of discovered that I enjoyed the operating room and, and like doing procedures and uh, then gravitated more towards ENT after doing some uh, rotations in a rural facility and then did some rotations at the university and, and eventually was able to make that happen. Great. 
We've already got a number of questions, so I might just wow. dive right in here. That's fast. That was fast. A viewer from Wagner says, help, I can't convince my husband to get his hearing checked. <laughs> I'm tired of repeating everything to him. I, he's probably telling you, you just mumble. That's, <laughs> that's usually what I hear is they're like, I can hear just fine if my, if my family would just speak up, it's okay. Um, it's interesting because they've done studies that looked at how well we self-assess our own hearing and we're terrible at it. They've done this with parents assessing their own children's hearing and they've done it with uh, adults self-reporting their own hearing. And with hearing loss, most of the time it's very gradual, so most people are truly not uh, aware of the severity of their hearing loss. So he, your husband may actually understand that he has a hearing loss, but he may think it's much milder than it really may be. But the only real way to, to know is, is a full hearing test. And usually with an audiologist, you can uh, um, oftentimes have those free of charge because they're um, trying to help you ascertain whether or not you might need their services. So uh, the hearing test would be the first step. And that's a very painless procedure. It's very easy to do. And um, you know, then you know exactly where you stand. And uh, if you can, if you need to, you can tell them I told you so. What 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 are the benefits of getting hearing aids or getting your hearing tested? <clears throat> Besides hearing better. Sure. The uh, that used to be kind of the only real. Uh, push that people had just they wanted to hear so they could participate socially and that is very important now They're starting to look at studies of uh, how much that affects us in in real life What does that really do for us? And it's just a matter of oh, I just don't you know I don't need to participate so I'm fine. I'll just sit in the corner But that, that leads to social isolation which has been proven to show increased rates of depression and now more recent studies have actually shown that it increases the rates of dementia and part of the issue there is if you're not stimulating those pathways in your brain, your brain is not kind of exercising, so to speak. And if you wait long enough and haven't been uh, hearing things for years, and then you try to use hearing aids, they're not gonna be as easy to use as someone who has started to use hearing aids initially when they had, had problems because your brain will lose the ability to decipher sound. So you may be able to make things louder, but you may not be able to decipher them. So it's, if you have a hearing loss, it's better to be on top of it early and treat it. And it might help get rid of ringing in the ears too. Yeah, that is, ringing is a big problem with, um, for a large number of uh, Americans. And if you look at um, population studies, anywhere up to 40% of people at some time in their life will have tinnitus or, hear, or ringing and uh, about a third will get better, about a third will get worse, and about a third will stay the same regardless of what you do. And there's a lot of supplements out there that claim they can make tinnitus better, but none of them have any evidence to, that they work. Uh, and they don't want to study it either because if they prove they don't work, they can't sell it. So they just put, you know, they'd rather have one third people get better and think it came from their supplement. Um, but there's been a lot of research into it. Uh, you know, they've looked at transcranial magnetic stimulation. They've looked at a bunch of different medications. They've looked at ginkgo biloba, zinc, things like that. But nothing's really been well proven to deal with it. Now, if you have masking, some sort of competing sound to help your brain be distracted from it, it usually makes it much more manageable. About 75% of people who have tinnitus can effectively manage it that way. And hearing aids actually are one of the more effective masking devices because they, they some of them will have a function where they kind of match the tinnitus and try to cancel it out. But others, just by amplifying the surrounding ambient noise, helps you ignore the tinnitus. Well, hope for, hopefully her husband heard all that. <laughs> A viewer from Brookings says she lost her sense of smell about two years ago. So not related to COVID, pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. um, no one can tell her why. Any ideas? 
Well, there's even prior to COVID, the, probably the most common reason was what we call idiopathic, which means we don't know what, exactly why you lost it. A large number of those seem to be coincidental with somebody having a viral upper respiratory infection or a sinus infection and losing it and then never having to come back after the infection resolved. Um, it's an it's a interesting problem to have. The nerve for your sense of smell is up at the roof of your sinuses and, the, and part of it goes onto the septum, part of it goes onto the back of the nose. And when you, uh, when you injure a nerve that comes directly out of the brain, which are called the cranial nerves, um, uh, most of them don't regenerate very well, but the olfactory nerve can. So sometimes that sense of smell will come back. And when you look at uh, other mechanisms of injury, one of them is uh, shear trauma, people who have like a whiplash injury where the brain slides back and forth inside the skull and it shears off that olfactory nerve, uh, the rootlets coming out of that. But um, those people sometimes will spontaneously months later have it return. Typically, if it's going to come back, it's probably gonna have some benefit, or you'll see some improvement in the first six months, but it can be painfully slow for some people. Two years out, it's, it's very frustrating because at that point, there's probably very low probability that you're gonna get much of a recovery. Um, the problems that arise from loss of sense of smell that are more impactful are that you can't tell if food's spoiled, you cannot uh, you know, appreciate if there's a natural gas leak in your um, house, um, smoke, things like that. So you, it, it's a safety issue uh, as well as just a quality of life issue. A lot of people are finding that out now with COVID. About half to 60% of people who have COVID get some sort of loss or, or dysfunction of their taste and smell. And uh, I had it myself and lost my sense of smell for about two weeks. And, you know, uh, the one good thing was I probably started to lose some weight because food just wasn't that, <laughs> wasn't that interesting. But, um, but it does really impact uh, just your enjoyment of normal everyday uh, uh, activities. Other things that can do it, certainly some volatile chemicals. Sometimes uh, side effects from medications can distort the sense of smell. Um, but uh, the majority of them are usually going to be um, some sort of post-viral injury. For losing your sense of smell from COVID, how long do you see that lasting for some people and is there anything they can do to help help that? The, if you look at everybody, the studies that are, uh, are coming out kind of daily about, about that, but um, it, people who lose their sense of smell in COVID, about 90% or so, it depends on the study, about 70 to 90% I would say in the first four weeks will have significant improvement to total recovery but somewhere between 10 and 30% have a more prolonged issue. And we don't know yet what that permanent rate seems to be, but when you look at the research that's been done on recovering your sense of smell, there's a few things that have shown some benefit. And that when you look at um, nasal steroid rinses, not just the sprays like Flonase or nasal, nasal uh, steroids like Nasacort, um, this would be actually putting um, steroid actually into a rinse bottle and then flushing it through your mm -hmm. nose because that gets higher up in the nose and farther back. Um, if you get on that for a more of a long-term daily use, um, omega-3 fatty acids, about 2,000 milligrams a day, and then something called olfactory or smell retraining, where uh, the, what the study looked at was four different smells. It was rose, lemon, eucalyptus, and clove. And they just used essential oils. And what they had people do is look at and smell, try to smell it for 15 seconds at a time while kind of visualizing what rose is supposed to smell like, what eucalyptus mm. is supposed to smell like. For me, I wouldn't know what clove is supposed to smell like, so I would have to pick a different one. But the idea is to stimulate the memory center of the brain with the olfactory center of the brain. So if you're getting some sort of signal coming in that your brain has not perceiving as smell, that it starts to kind of connect those memories. 
And if you, you're looking at four months of doing this, 47% of people improve significantly with that regimen, whereas 25% that improve with placebo. So it does double your, your rate, but it's, it, it doesn't necessarily bring you back to 100%. And sure. you know, it's still only half of the people, but you know, half is a lot better than one quarter. Yeah, interesting. A uh, caller from Washington Springs asks about a friend who constantly clears his throat. He <laughs> says it is, is related to allergies, but it's a year-round problem. What else could cause this? Or could it just be a habit? Well, habit, yeah, habitual clearing can be a problem for sure. Um, year-round, there are some allergies like uh, dust mites and certain molds that can be year-round. But um, we see a lot more issues with people who have poor vocal hygiene or throat hygiene because the moisture in the, in the throat is more adherent to more sticky mucus, so it's not just going down like it's supposed to. You know, if you look at just the normal mucus formation in the nose and the throat daily with saliva and normal nasal secretions, it's somewhere around a liter to a liter and a half a day, which sounds horribly disgusting, but you don't realize you're doing that as long as it's the right consistency. If it gets too thick or if it gets too voluminous or uh, other issues, you can then start to perceive that. And sometimes what people are actually noticing is that it's too thick and it's actually a reduced volume. It's just adherent and sticky. As we get older, our mucus formation changes and we do tend to have more adherent secretions. Um, also, the uh, habitual things like smoking, chewing, um, using alcohol, um, caffeine can all contribute to more of a kind of generally irritated larynx or throat so that you're more likely to have to clear your throat and it makes the mucus thicker. They also increase the risk of reflux and reflux, acid reflux just into the esophagus can trigger you to make more mucus uh, through some reflex pathways. So the reflux doesn't even have to kind of get into your mouth necessarily for you to feel uh, increased kind of irritation and throat clearing, uh, the need to clear your throat. Now there are other things certainly like uh, sinus disease where if you have chronic postnasal drip that you can also have issues with that. Um, is, so if they've tried steroid nasal sprays for allergies or allergy pills, or if it's really not even related with allergies, this chronic dripping and, and mm -hmm. make you want to cough or blow your nose, anything else or any new procedures that mm -hmm. can help? The, well, there's several different uh, types of sprays that you can use. Nasal steroids are a large category, which most people have heard of Flonase or Nasacort. They've been advertised quite a bit. There are some nasal antihistamines, which would be in the same category as like Allegra or Zyrtec, but they're a spray in the nose and those can help with allergy. And they also uh, have another spray called ipratropium, which is very helpful for people who are um, what we call vasomotor rhinitis. These are typically people who are in their 70s or 80s that get a lot of uh, runny nose. It's typically associated with eating or certain smells like perfumes and sometimes diesel exhaust, things like that, that really seem to trigger the nose to really drip. That'll do better with that. But um, oral antihistamines like Allegra and Zyrtec certainly dry you out, but um, sometimes you're not actually treating an allergy, you're just treating a side effect, or you're getting the side effect basically mm -hmm. from the medication. So um, if you fail those things, it used to be that you just kind of have to deal with nasal medications, oral steroids, thing, or, or I'm sorry, oral antihistamines, things like that, and if you had no bene benefit, you were just out of luck. Uh, saline rinses help somewhat too to keep kind of getting the mucus flowing to the back, but uh, now there's a procedure out called um, Clarifix, and what that is basically is treating the nerve that controls the mucus formation and the congestion in the nose with liquid nitrogen. So you're basically causing an injury to that nerve, 
And after t between two and eight weeks after that procedure, about 80% of people have significant reduction in the, in the draining of the nose in the post-nasal drip and cough and throat clearing. So if you're wow. in that category, then there now is something that we can do that seems to make a big difference and has a very easy recovery usually. I think you're going to get some phone calls on Monday about that <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah that's, there's a lot of people who <laughs> suffer with that, that's for sure. Yeah. Earwax is produced by the ear to clean and protect itself, but sometimes it can build up and cause issues. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt talked to ear, nose, and throat physician Dr. Lauren Jones about earwax and when it might be time to get your ears checked. It's important for some people and for others, maybe not. It's supposed to be sort of a, a self-maintaining system where the cerumen is made by specialized sort of specialized sweat glands in the ear canal. And it's there to make uh, an environment that's inhospitable to bacterial and fungal growth. And so you need some earwax and it's supposed to just kind of come out on its own and carry debris out with it and you just wipe it at the outside and that's that's enough for most people. But some people due to the consistency of their earwax or maybe the shape of their ear canal, which can change with age, may end up in a situation where they need to do something to help that system stay clean. In an ENT office like mine, most folks will do a type of ear cleaning with using an instrument. So we will have something, either a microscope or a handheld otoscope that we can look through and see what we're doing and use suctions or little uh, loops to scoop the wax out and remove it. At a family practice clinic generally or, or a general office, you'll get an irrigation system where they use a big syringe and wash the wax out with water. Either way can be effective. And it can be not just hearing problems. Some people might have a ringing problem that has cropped up or just a sense of pressure or fullness. Um, occasionally, cerumen, if it's uh, impacted and, and uh, really blocks the ear canal fully, they may get really moist in behind there and develop an infection. And, and so it can cause a, a fairly wide variety of problems. But certainly, there are lots of times where you take somebody that works out and they're like, wow, now I can hear. So it's, nice. it's a nice, easy win sometimes. <laughs> Most people, like I mentioned before, will be fine if they just in the shower or after the shower with a moist washcloth on their finger, just wipe out the part that your finger will reach, and that's enough for most people. Using a Q-tip, in my opinion, is fine. Uh, I don't think that's a problem. The reason I say that is that for most people, the skin of the ear canal, once you get past the cartilage into the inner part of the ear canal that's uh, skinned directly on bone, it's very tender. So as soon as you get to that part, it's going to start being uncomfortable and you won't go further. So it's the only people I've ever seen injured their eardrum with a Q-tip have been people that uh, were bumped or surprised while they were doing it and that and caused a TM perforation. I've seen it happen, so it's not completely without potential downside, but for the most part, if you're cautious and stay around the outer half of the ear canal, it, it should be fine. The other downside is that sometimes the Q-tip is so fat compared to the diameter of the ear canal that it can push wax in rather than bringing it out. So there's there's some downsides, but a lot of people use them every day after their shower and it's, it's just fine. In ENT offices, we're always happy to uh, have patients come in, even if that's their only complaint, just to get the earwax out. We're very comfortable doing yeah. that for them and it's a service that helps a lot of people. Yes, the great Q-tip debate. <laughs> I, uh, I've certainly seen where you know it's, people get some out, but then they're pushing it back in and making it worse. I don't know. How do you feel about Q-tips? 
It's it's kind of a double-edged sword because it does, you know, there are a lot of people that use them and get away with it and don't ever have a trouble uh, or an issue where they have to come in. But I get to see the people who come in who have packed the wax in so tight against their drum that they've got this rock-hard ball in there. And that's not very, it doesn't feel very good to get out like he was explaining with the skin being adherent to the bone closer to the drum that's very tender and so is the drum. And I have had people uh, rupture their ear with Q-tips that were not bumped and I've also had just yesterday, I, and I've had this multiple times, where they come in because the tip of the Q-tip came off and they, it's, got, it's wedged in there yeah, against the yeah. eardrum. Almost everybody who comes in, even the ones with perforations, tell me that they, they barely go in with the Q-tip. They, 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 they stay right on the edge. And uh, somehow stuff's getting all, the way down, <laughs> getting all the way down there. But again, I bet I see one out of every thousand pers persons who are using Q-tips. So. Sure. For the most part, try not to stick anything <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> sharper than your elbow in your ear. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a caller asks, why do I have this thumping noise in my ear? Sometimes the last days, sometimes only an hour. Hmm. Uh, well, it, it depends on kind of the quality of what it sounds like. I mean, if it's a thumping that's going with your heartbeat, there are a, you know, potential things, vascular things that can do that. Um, you think about stenosis or narrowing of the arteries. You think about aneurysms. In the reality, that's it's not real common, but it can happen. Um, increased intracerebral pressure uh, can do that. It can actually wear some of the bone on top of the the uh, ear structures away, so that you get this transmission of a um, a noise from the the pressure in the in the CSF. But there are so uh, people who suffer from muscle spasms of the stapedius muscle or the tensor tympani, which both of these tiny little muscles that go into the ear and hold onto the middle ear bone, so they kind of dampen the sound if you're around loud noises. But sometimes you can get a repetitive clicking or, or noise when those are uh, spasming. Uh, this caller asks, why does their hearing work well in the morning, and by the time they go to bed, and turn, they have to turn their TV way up because they can barely hear it? Well, sometimes that's perception. Um, it's hard to know for sure. You'd have to get a hearing test to see where your hearing actually is. Often in the morning you've been, um, you're in a quiet environment when you first wake up for most people and so you may feel like you're much better at hearing things because there's nothing competing sound-wise and as the day goes on you've been exposed to a lot more noise and you may be kind of dampening that sound or just have learned to t tune out some of those things and so it feels perceptually harder to hear but from a nerve standpoint there's not really a neurologic explanation for that. If you had bad like eustachian tube dysfunction where you can't get the ears to open up and uh, The eustachian tube, the, the tube between the nose and the ear. Correct. So when yep. that gets clogged, then more likely to have inner ear problems. In the middle ear then, if it, if it can't maintain normal pressure, because um, you, you need to have equal pressure on both sides of the eardrum for it to vibrate well, and if you have that obstructed and the body starts to absorb the, the air behind the drum, you can create kind of a negative pressure which pulls tension on the drum, which can create a fullness or pressure sensation and a muffling of your hearing. Um, and if you can pop the ears, usually that significantly improves. But there are some people um, who just can't do that. But you see that phenomenon in you know little kids where it leads to middle ear infections frequently. And they usually have smaller, more narrow, more horizontal eustachian tubes. And as they grow, they get larger diameter, more vertical, and they tend to grow out of it. But and they, when they're really small, usually they're getting a lot of colds. And, and whenever your nose is inflamed, you can have inflammation of the eustachian tube as well. And then if you can't get that ear to pop, you may fill up with fluid. You know, I think this is a good time to show our cartoon video of, of the ear yeah. and uh, to show the anatomy and we can kind of see 
that eustachian tube and how sometimes there's a procedure you can do uh, to help open that up. So yeah. there that's showing on there, if you want to talk us through yeah, that a so little the, bit. So they're showing in this cartoon, there's actually a balloon going into the eustachian tube and they're showing the fluid, that green leak back out of there. But the area where they are marking fluid buildup, that's where you can actually, initially before you get fluid, often you have a negative pressure or that vacuum or pulling sensation in there which can muffle the hearing. Um, and that uh, procedure they're showing there is relatively new. Um, it's called balloon eustachian tuboplasty. And uh, in the past, we really, you know, we'd use nasal steroids, we'd use oral steroids, autoinsufflation, or trying to pop your ears to try and clear that. But if you were unsuccessful, the only other option was an ear tube. Now, this is actually video. That's uh, this is the device going in through the nose here. Looks a little blurry. So this is up in someone's nose. The back of their nose, yep. And they're coming up on a horseshoe-shaped soft tissue lump there, and that's the opening to the eustachian tube. So that goes, that's the connection to the nose from the ear. And so you can see some swelling in there, and it's kind of tight. And so they're going to feed a balloon right up that eustachian tube. And the procedure, usually we, we leave that in dilated for about two minutes, and then, uh, then we deflate it and pull it out. And about 75% of people who have significant trouble with their eustachian tube will have improvement in, the, uh, in their ear, middle ear function where they may go from not being able to pop their ears to being able to pop it, which hopefully allows them to clear fluid and not have that chronic pressure issue. Um, the, uh, uh, prior to this, the only real option you had was to put a tube in the eardrum, which, you know, that's a hole in your eardrum. There are some risks with that. Overall, it's pretty safe, but in adults, often the tubes don't last quite as long. Mm. And if an adult's having trouble with this, it's often more of a lifelong thing, whereas sure. for children, often you're just trying to get them through till like age two or three. And it's not like you're leaving this balloon in or a stent or anything Correct. else like that. Just yeah, and you can see, and they're pulling it out there, and you can see the difference already uh, just in what they've uh, compressed. It's not quite as tight, but the tissues do swell after this, and so the, the benefit takes a little while because the lining, uh, what the studies have shown is it gets relined with more healthy lining material, so it's, uh, plus it can actually cause the, some of the cartilage that helps shape part of that tube to be more expanded. Wow. Uh, this, patient, this person says, I'm 84 and my voice has changed. What could that be due to a lack of talking from being isolated from COVID or just mm -hmm. from age? Um, well, they both are probably part of the, the equation there. As we get older, the, the vocal folds tend to atrophy somewhat. We lose some of the muscle tone. We don't, uh, so the bulk of the vocal cords decreases. And we, uh, in your 80s, oftentimes the lining's a little different as well. So often you'll see the pitch is lower in the elderly population. And often your voice, if the vocal folds are becoming more bowed because they're, they're not as strong as they used to be, you can start getting more of a breathiness or, or not getting as many words out before you have to take a breath. Um, there is very good evidence that speech therapy can help improve the bulk of the vocal cords. And it's kind of like lifting weights with your, with your voice box, and it can help improve that. Um, if speech therapy is not effective enough, you can. There are some procedures you can do to, to bulk up the vocal cords. You can inject them with um, uh, usually an absorbable type of material that lasts somewhere around a year uh, to bulk them up. You can. There's a procedure called a thyroplasty where you actually go and make an incision in the neck down near the Adam's apple, and you make a window in the cartilage and put in a little implant to push the vocal fold over. And they can be very effective at improving the strength of your voice. Oftentimes the pitch isn't as, as well, uh, it doesn't improve as well because there's other things that go with that, the, the mucosal hydration and the, the, the quality of the lining. So. Hmm. Um, we're gonna do a few rapid ones here. Um, 
This one says, could you elaborate on what to do about symptoms from idiopathic postnasal drip, even though I am taking the prescribed medication? I guess we kind of touched on this, mm -hmm. but um, you mentioned that procedure. Oh. Or if there's anything else you'd recommend, I guess, about uh, if there's idiopathic postnasal drip. And, you know, a lot of it will come down to the history, you know, are there any other contributing factors that you're seeing? That, you know, is it certain times of the year? Is it certain times of the day? Are there certain places that bother you more? Foods bother you more? Um, are you having other symptoms, itching, sneezing, drainage out the front of your nose? Um, so, you know, kind of narrowing it down to try and see, is there anything else that's contributing to that? And if it turns out to be just vasomotorhinitis or chronic postnasal drip, uh, and those dietary and lifestyle modifications haven't made uh, enough benefit there. And then sometimes we may, may do a CAT scan to make sure the sinuses aren't involved. Sometimes you can be fooled by the sinuses and think that it's just post-nasal drip. Um, but then you start thinking about that Clarifix procedure um, and you know, how much is this bothering you? Is it, is it affecting you enough that you want to do something? This person says, what are the two bumps on the back side of the ear and why would they get noticeably larger over the course of the over the year, they said. The, so. I'm assuming they're meaning a bump on both sides? That's, they said both sides. Yeah, so or are they talking about, if they're talking about two, imagine, yeah. but if they're talking about two separate bumps, that may be something different, but if they're talking about the bump that's behind both sides, that is the mastoid bone, and typically as you grow, um, often the mastoid will get somewhat larger with age and the skull size, but the uh, mastoid bone is just a pneumatized area, kind of like a sinus, that is usually full of air and healthy people and just a normal lining uh, material that is connected to the middle ear and if you get a middle ear infection that also can fill up with fluid and get inflamed as well. Back before antibiotics um, oftentimes the mastoid would get infected bad enough that it would cause the ear to push forward and you get an abscess behind the ear mm -hmm. and surgery, ear surgery could be actually was uh, life-saving in, mm -hmm. in those situations to actually dr drill that out or back then it was actually using chisels uh, to take a lot of that yeah. out so um, nose blades can sometimes be scary when they don't stop Prairie Doc reporter Tori Burnt spoke with Dr. Adrian Dreesen about what you should do if you find yourself in that situation. What I tell patients at home are to grab, you know, several Kleenex or a couple paper towels and then try to blow out their nostrils, kind of blow out all the clot that sometimes um, collects in the nose cavity. There's actually a lot of room in there. Um, and so try to blow it out because sometimes what happens is wherever it's bleeding from, the clot can form uh, over the area that's bleeding, but not adhere to the surface. And therefore it kind of oozes underneath a clot and you can't get pressure on it. And so in my opinion, the first thing to do is blow it out, which of course freaks people out because if they have this big blood clot come out, they're like, oh, you know, I'm bleeding to death. But the good news is they're not. And then, so blow out the nostrils and then hold pressure just below the nasal bone, so the hard part of the nose, uh, and clip both sides with your, uh, like a thumb on one side and a finger on the other side, and hold that for 10 minutes. Um, obviously, that's kind of a lot of potential pressure, so sometimes you have to switch hands or do whatever. But try to then, I ask also people to watch a clock because unfortunately, 10 minutes is a really long time if you're waiting for it. And so unless you time that out, there's no way to like count 10 minutes because I think you'll sort of um, lose time. What I recommend too is to repeat the process. So if after that 10 minutes it's still bleeding, repeat everything all over again. So paper towels or uh, several Kleenex, 
blow out the nostril and then put pressure and then hopefully that'll be enough to make that so it'll stop bleeding and i asked them to do it three times because i think sometimes um uh, it takes that amount and i think if we get past that point then it may be time to come see us in the emergency to let us help look at it and decide what to do there are also the kind of uh, common beliefs about like ice on the bridge of the nose. I don't think that unfortunately does anything. I don't think you should stick anything in there. I've had patients before show up with like a, unfortunately a tampon in their nostril. And the unfortunate part about that is they expand. <laughs> and so it's really hard to pull that out. So unfortunately, I, you don't realize how much they could expand. And so I wouldn't recommend that. So I wouldn't stuffing the nose. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, using a tampon to stop a nosebleed doesn't seem like a bad idea at first, but then maybe as it expands, maybe not so good. What's the weirdest thing anyone stuck in their nose oh. that you've encountered? Um, well, there's a lot of different things. I mean, certainly I've found coins. Uh, I had a little two-year-old come in with, or three-year-old. It was about one in the morning had a piece of sausage from a pizza that he shoved, stuffed in his nose, which I was tired and I was kind of wondering why the parents would let him have pizza at two in the morning when he was three years old. But Because um, uh, when they're three, they you do whatever, do whatever you need to do. <laughs> get them to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, um, uh, toys, you know, crayons, um, erasers, uh, foam darts. Uh, I, had a, I had a guy with a spider. He didn't put that on purpose, mm. but that was very weird to be looking back through the endoscope and all of a sudden going, I think that's, uh, and then it just, then he sniffed and it disappeared, so he took care of it for Oof. me. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I took care, I took out a live moth out of someone's ear know. one time because ah. it crawled in and it couldn't back out. So I grabbed it with the alligator clippers and as soon as I got it out, then it was fluttering and everything. <laughs> I, I, I had a, Dead flies and other... I had a hunter that got a, um, uh, the tip of a pussy willow up his nose and Ooh. broke off and he couldn't get that out. And I had a snowmobiler that went through an evergreen and took a, uh, the stick went in through his sinuses and ruptured into the, right into the side of his eye, but thankfully didn't lose his sight. Yeah. All right. Um, do hearing aids increase the amount of earwax in the ear? Uh, they they seem like they do, but it's not because you're making more wax. It's because you're blocking the wax from escaping from the canal. Most ears are self-cleaning, and the wax works its way to the outside. But if you have something constantly plugging it, it makes it so it doesn't doesn't get out. So a lot of people with hearing aids do have more feel like they have more wax production than they did before they used them. My son was born with a small bronchial cleft cyst. Why does this happen? What is a um. The, the branchial clefts are a developmental, kind of a vestigial remnant of, uh, as you're developing, the branchial clefts uh, are along the sides of the neck, and if you've ever looked at pictures of embryos and they talk about having gill slits, that's the branchial clefts. And usually they, most of them kind of grow over and just dissolve. The first branchial cleft, though, becomes your ear canal, and that one we obviously need to keep, stay open. But if you have uh, some residual leftover material, sometimes that can just sit there and you don't, and I've had that uh, kind of not show up until people were adults. It gets infected and all of a sudden it blows up into a little ball or sometimes even a big, big infected mass. But uh, the vast majority of them are benign. Um, you know, it, surgery usually takes care of it. They can be uh, a, uh, uh, 
fistula from the throat all the way to the skin can be a cyst all by itself or it can be a sinus where it connects to the skin uh, through a little pore that will sometimes leak uh, off and on so so then you might take that out or yeah usually you have to take out, out you want to take out the whole tract or uh, yeah. you know in the in the situation of a cyst you just make an incision over the top of it get around the cyst and get it out and you should be fine um, I've had vertigo, and I'm wondering if there is something I could do or a specialist I could reach out to to relieve those symptoms. What do you recommend for vertigo? Uh, vertigo, is a, that, that is a tough problem, and it's very, very frustrating, and a lot of people um, uh, have a very hard time describing what's really going on, so it tends to be a longer visit. So I think that oftentimes makes the practitioner feel a little bit kind of... Uh, deflated as they walk in the door when they know that dizziness is the concern. But it's not because of the patient, it's because of that it's such a hard problem to, to really get to the bottom of. And now if you're talking vertigo, vertigo is a sensation of movement when you're not actually moving, um, whereas dizziness is kind of a huge um, descriptor where people can yeah. be talking about lightheadedness or off balance or all sorts of things. But vertigo, the actual movement sensation, frequently is associated with some sort of an ear inner ear problem. Um, and then it, a lot of the diagnosis of vertigo really comes down to the history. There's a lot of different labs and tests that you can do, but most of those are not very helpful. The majority of it's going to come down to how long do the, the symptoms happen, what makes them occur, um, do you have other associated ear symptoms with it, um, and so kind of uh, narrowing that down. Usually a hearing test is required to help make sure that, they're, uh, that you are on the right track with your diagnosis. But the most common things, if you're talking about vertigo episodes that are very short-lived and uh, motion-induced, is benign positional vertigo, which is often something that with physical therapy can be treated very easily. But um, you can have it be migraine-associated dizziness or Meniere's, which are very common. Migraine-associated dizziness is probably the, one of the more common ones. And that can be a more challenging thing to treat. A good reason to still go see your doctor. And, yes. And if you're not getting anywhere, maybe see someone else, too. Yeah. Um, every month or so, I lose hearing in one ear due to changes in pressure, I think. It always corrects itself in a day or so. Do I need to have it checked out? If it always returns back to the baseline and you feel like it's more of a pressure-related thing, popping the ear, um, then you probably don't have to. It, it depends on how much it bothers you. The other thing that can sometimes do that is, is wax that's very close to the eardrum. It gets impacted a little tighter and all of a sudden everything's muffled and then you move your jaw just right or something and it opens up. But if you can usually get it back to itself and it doesn't bother you that much, you don't necessarily have to have it checked out. I think that'd probably be the same answer. Someone says every time they fly, they have issues with their ears for a day or two afterwards mm. and can't hear as well. Yeah. Because the eustachian uh, tube's getting plugged. And yep, usually it's the eustachian tube issue. Sometimes um, you might have some success if you use Afrin. Uh, it's a nasal mm. decongestant spray before mm. you fly. It might help keep it from getting so obstructed. Sudafed may help a little bit as well. Um, we touched on tinnitus there. What recommendations do you have for treating tinnitus? A few different people asked about tinnitus mm. or tinnitus. Yeah. Uh, Which is it? Well, we say tinnitus. Tinnitus, if tinnitus would, uh, would be IS at the end, and usually that means inflammation, but tinnitus is, is, uh, is what most ENTs would say and most physicians would say, but uh, we understand what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, as I was saying before, tinnitus doesn't have any cure that we know of, and this natural course is that one-third get better with time, one-third get worse, and one-third yeah. stay the same. But the primary thing that people do is using masking strategies, having some other competing sound with that. And you, always, you also should get your hearing checked to see if there's any real asymmetry. One ear is really bad and the other ear is not. Then, then you may need to get an MRI to make sure there's nothing else going on. Uh, 
this person says, I'm age 73 and I have ear ringing, which we touched on. Can a procedure called candling relieve earwax? Is it safe? What do you say about <laughs> candling? A lot of people love it. Um, these, they actually finally did some studies to look at it because um, there are very strong believers in candling. But um, they tested to see, does it generate any negative pressure, meaning does it create suction to pull stuff out of your ear? And they've shown that it does not create any appreciable suction. And then they tested all the debris that tends to build up when you're doing the, uh, the candling. And uh, the, the debris is not doesn't have evidence that it's coming from human cells. It's uh, thought to be residue from the candle that uh, as it cools, as the flame cools, that it, uh, it condenses. Um, also, the FDA now has warned, put a warning on them because they have had multiple people set their hair on fire with them. So it's not, uh, I, I would say don't use it. Yeah. But I also don't argue with people who love them. Sure. You know, we touched on, you know, throat changes or, or a hard, hard lump or, you know, the lump behind their ear. You know, some of these things could, certainly not always, could be suggestive of head and neck cancer. What are some of the signs and symptoms or things you'd recommend someone getting checked out if they noticed? Well, certainly um, any long-standing, you know, a couple months uh, mass in the neck should in an adult should be checked out. Kids, it's much more common to have some lymph nodes that kind of come up and are and you can feel or even see uh, that are usually just reactive, meaning that they're part of the immune response to just a skin infection or a cold or something like that. But an adult that has a mass in the neck that's not going away, um, that should be checked out. Um, the uh, concern, you know, the, the major head and neck cancer uh, that's related to your first question, am I allowed to tell the answer to that question now? Yes, I am. Okay, so with caffeine, or I'm sorry, with <laughs> alcohol, tobacco, and uh, human papillomavirus, as well as some other things like chronic trauma, poor dental hygiene, um, and uh, um, some things that are really done in our country so much, like beetle uh, nut chewing or um, some reverse smoking. Some people like hold a cigar in the mouth backwards and mm. kind of puff the smoke. I don't quite understand that, but that's more Southeast Asia typically. Uh, but those things all do put you at increased risk of that. So if you have that history, you should be more concerned. Um, the, the other symptoms that we often will see in conjunction with that are some sort of non-healing sore in the mouth or throat, uh, difficulty with swallowing or pain when you're swallowing. Um, a lot of the nerves that carry sensation from the throat also innervate the ear, so people can have pain in the ear as well. Um, and then voice change. If you, uh, your vocal cords have a cancer on them, oftentimes they get bulkier or irritated and your voice changes significantly. And we touched on human papillomavirus. Is there anything we can do to help prevent that? Yes, that's definitely gotten a lot more traction lately, but the, uh, most of the marketing on human papillomavirus vaccines are uh, uh, talking about cervical cancer because that's where uh, a lot of the um, uh, um, huge numbers of cancers come from. And the vaccine can prevent the main types of human papillomavirus that cause cervical cancer. Now, the head and neck cancer that's located in the tonsils or in the back of the tongue, the tongue, the lingual tonsil, is most commonly associated with human papillomavirus. So we're seeing a lot more people get that now that are non-smokers, non-drinkers. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, so if you get immunized, it should help significantly reduce the, the susceptibility to, to human papillomavirus cancers everywhere. So we would advocate that, that boys and girls get it um, in, uh, in their routine shot um, therapy as they're growing up, going yeah. through their immunizations. Start at age 11, 12. Mm -hmm. I'm 69 years old, and I was wondering if it's okay to take over-the-counter Sudafed. I wonder if it would affect my heart rate or ability to urinate. Well, 
I, I would recommend uh, coracetin, perhaps, mm -hmm. or, uh, or, or just an antihistamine, perhaps, even try. Mm -hmm. I don't know what your thoughts on decongestants if, in general. If your main issue is that you can't breathe as well through the nose as you want to, the, I would say nasal steroid sprays and saline yeah. would, be more, would be better because they're very locally acting and they don't really have any side effects to the rest of your body. Uh, Sudafed, some people tolerate it really well and have very little side effects, but it has a lot of potential problems with high blood pressure, rapid heart rate, um, can make it hard to sleep. And, you know, there's a lot of things that it can, uh, can do. So it's ideally, I don't like people on medications like that chronically. Yeah. This person says uh, they have breathing problems and had the Vivier procedure that made it, made it worse. I can only breathe through one nostril at a time and it switches. What could be causing this? Now, I'm not familiar with that what that procedure was. Yeah. Huh. Um, usually, if there's a one side or an issue where you can only breathe through one side of the nose, there's some sort of anatomic obstruction. So, you know, there may be a spur on the septum pushing into one side of the nose, or the lining of the nose, the turbinates may be really large on one side. You may have a polyp on one side, um, sinus disease causing inflammation on one side more. So, um, to really kind of get to the bottom of it, it's probably good to just get a nasal endoscopy and find out what, what's going on all the way back in the nose. Yeah. Uh, this person has a friend who lost his hearing after having COVID and wondering if that would come back. Have you heard about losing hearing with COVID? Um, I've, they have talked about other cranial nerves being affected and hearing is, would be one of them. Um, I haven't heard anything different about sudden hearing loss from COVID compared to other things. Usually there's a high rate of spontaneous recovery when you have a sudden hearing loss, but when they've, they, there's a lot of things people have looked at, including hyperbaric oxygen, um, nitro, uh, different vasodilator medications, things like that. The only thing that's had some benefit, and we're really not sure how much it is, but is oral steroids like prednisone or transtympanic steroid injections where you actually make a little hole mm -hmm. in the eardrum and inject steroids directly into the middle ear and let it sit there. Um, the numbers are kind of all over the board about what the real benefit is with that, but it does seem to be something that's very time sensitive. And if you want to have any success with that treatment, you probably need to have it done within about three to four weeks of losing your hearing. After that, the, the response rate drops dramatically. Uh, what causes tonsillar crypts and how can I prevent them? Hmm. Um, well, that's just kind of the anatomy, the way God made your tonsils. Um, some people have very smooth tonsils. Some people have really, you know, deep irregular tonsils, which are what crypts are, the kind of uh, um, pockets where stuff can get stuck. And tonsil stones are usually kind of a combination of food residue, bacteria, things of that nature that get kind of packed into those little crypts and they can cause bad breath. They can cause infections or pain and abscess. Uh, and so occasionally people will have enough trouble with them that they end up having their tonsils out. But most people... Um, they're not real bothersome and they're more occasional and they can often get them out on their own with just using like a toothbrush or something to give a little pressure around the crypt to, to expel the stone. Yeah. In the final minute of talking here, uh, anything, if you could say anything to the world right now about your nose and throat, last words of wisdom, what would you <laughs> like to share? Uh, hmm. Well, there, it, just like a lot of medicine, that there's so much of uh, this kind of generalized uh, problem or dysfunction that comes from our lifestyle habits. And really, yeah. uh, the throat likes water and it hates everything, everything else that causes it to be dry and irritated. The things that, that a lot of people love, like tobacco and alcohol, of course. But um, 
the uh, you know diet and exercise and preventative stuff is is important for head and neck just as much as it is for the rest of uh, the body. So taking care of yourself, good good sleep patterns, you know, trying to stay away from those kind of poor lifestyle choices and and trying to stay in shape as much as you can gives you a better chance to have less problems in the long run. Good idea. They make Dr. Home proud. Yeah. Well, I got to tie it back into primary care, right? Yes. 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 And and uh, who, who, what's your pick for the Super Bowl here? Ah. I used to really not like Tom Brady because he had too much success. But then the last Super Bowl, when they did all these interviews about his home or about his grandparents in Minnesota and how he liked to go back to Minnesota, then I started feeling a little more like he's <laughs> he's one of us, which I know he is not. But uh, so I'm I'm leaning a little bit more towards him just to see an old guy do it. But sure. But it's fun to see Kansas City again too. So. Sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> and now for the answer to tonight's Prairie Doc quiz question: Which of the following are causes of head and neck cancer? A, tobacco, smoked and smokeless, B, alcohol, C, human papillomavirus, or D, all the above? The answer is D. They are all guilty of being a cause of head and neck cancer. The winner of tonight's quiz is Pat Loge from Twin Brooks. Thank you, Pat, for participating. A book will be in the mail soon. We'll be right back after this. For nearly two decades, the Prairie Doc organization has endeavored to enhance health and diminish suffering by providing useful information based on honest science in a respectful and compassionate manner. Health professionals volunteer to answer your questions each week, creating a vast Prairie Doc library of medical information available to you and your family 24 hours a day. Make sure you don't miss a thing. Follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook and YouTube for free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc Library. The feeling of pressure and pain in the front of the face and around the eyes is all too familiar for millions of Americans. Our sinuses include four pairs of air-filled cavities above and below the eyes and behind the nose. They are helpful for humidifying the air we breathe, resonating our voices, enlightening the weight of our heads. However, the sinuses can be prone to inflammation and infection. The mucus lining of the sinuses serve as an antimicrobial barrier to infection, and little hairs called cilia help to sweep out the unwanted bacteria and viruses. Disruptions to this system commonly come from allergies and viruses. If the passageways get blocked, then bacteria can grow and flourish in the moist, warm, mucousy environment. Sinusitis is inflammation of the sinuses, which can cause the full feeling behind the eyes, pressure, and pain. If left untreated, it can cause fevers and a systemic response from the body. Chronic sinusitis, lasting more than three months, can be caused by allergies, nasal polyps, ongoing infection, a deviated nasal septum, pollutants, or other conditions. One of the keys to treatment and prevention of sinusitis is keeping the sinuses open and draining. Nasal saline, a saltwater mixture, can be used to help rinse out and open the sinuses and can be just as effective as antibiotics. If allergies are at fault, a steroid nasal spray or steroid pills can be used to decrease inflammation and swelling. A nasal steroid spray can also be used to help treat a nasal polyp. 
helping to shrink the polyp to aid in the circulation of air and mucus. For some people with chronic and recurring sinusitis, surgery is their best option and can provide welcome relief. Try this. Hold one nostril shut as you breathe in and out the other. Now switch to the other nostril and breathe in and out. Chances are you can breathe more freely on one side compared to the other. Wait a few hours, try it again, and chances are the opposite side is more open. Congestion in our nose naturally changes sides every four to six hours. If you find that one side is always blocked, then you may want to see your primary doctor or an ear, nose, and throat specialist. Our bodies are designed for flow. The flow of air, food, blood, waste, and even mucus keeps us healthy. Next time you blow your nose, remember you are helping the natural movement of mucus. So just blow with the flow. A big thank you to our guest, Dr. Jonathan Melema, for volunteering to help us learn more about otolaryngology. If you would like more information about this program or to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. That does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Two people may be talking, but neither can understand the other. Health literacy, how to avoid who's on first when talking with your doctor. Next time, on call with the Prairie Doc. Useful science-based health information delivered in a respectful and compassionate manner. This is what we all receive from the Prairie Docs. Hello, my name is Dave Hank, and I serve on the board of the Healing Words Foundation. Our organization works to build financial support for Prairie Doc programs. We thank our four Prairie Docs and the many health providers who volunteer their time to answer our health questions. However, significant funding is required to produce and distribute video, radio, and print programs throughout the region. Your donations can help us continue the Prairie Doc legacy. On behalf of the Healing Words Foundation Board, please join us in our mission. Go to prairiedoc.org and click the donate button today. Major funding for On Call with Prairie Doc has been provided by Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. 
And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Flandreau District Medical Society, Pierre District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.